everyone, and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast. ICU Ed, like education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast podcast. I am Eddie, he is Todd, and today we are going to talk about some recent articles in blood transfusions. The MINT trial, or Restrictive or Liberal Transfusion Strategy in Myocardial Infarction, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, November 2023, simultaneously published and presented at AHA by Carson et al. And then the second article we're going to talk about, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it because it doesn't directly impact the way we care for patients, but it's really interesting. And it's a retrospective cohort exploring intracerebral hemorrhage and blood transfused, published by Zhao et al. in JAMA in 2023. If by really interesting you mean scary, then yes, I would agree with you. <laughs> yeah, scary. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely get into it, but it is... Uh, it's kind of troubling. Yeah. Hang on to our second segment uh, if you want to figure out what's troubling Todd there. But uh, Todd, how are you before we dive into that? I- I'm doing okay. We kind of had a little bit of uh, colder weather, and then it kind of went back to not quite as cold. So um, it's just kind of cruise control right now. <laughs> We're talking about the weather. That means we didn't have too much to talk about. Uh, you're on service, Todd. Anything interesting? Well, I tried not to talk about politics on this podcast. We did talk know? about the Supreme Court. Uh, I didn't get any feedback about that one, so I guess everyone agreed with us there. We got, we got lucky. Uh, I'm on service, yes. Nothing that's like a unicorn or a really, really, really kind of never seen that before. But, you know, we have a couple good cases. Little ID stuff. We have a new diagnosis of AIDS in a patient that didn't know they had HIV, which is something that we used to see a reasonable amount of. And honestly, we just don't see it very much anymore. That was something that was pretty prevalent in your training, Todd? Or did you miss that? Like HIV was in the 80s, Eddie. I mean, like, you know, I mean, HIV is obviously still around. But the full-blown AIDS, you know, we didn't know. Everybody was scared. was sort of the 80s, maybe even early 90s. And that believe it or not, does precede my my medical training. But we still would see patients who didn't know they had HIV and their presentation would be, you know, multiple AIDS-defining illnesses. Uh, and that's sort of what this, this patient has. And for a lot of the people younger than me upstairs in the ICU, it, they're like, wow, you know, like I've never seen this before. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it has, fortunately, it has become considerably more rare, uh, but it was something that we used to see a reasonable amount of. The other kind of interesting case is a case of a patient that developed uh, histoplasmosis on infliximab. And I think, because we're holding her infliximab, I think she actually has immune reconstitution, uh, inflammatory syndrome, iris, from the reconstitution of her immune system off of the infliximab, which is not that widely reported. Um, yeah, but, I didn't. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, well, obviously it happens in patients with HIV who get retroviral therapy and reconstitute their immune system. Right. My understanding is that this is less well reported, but potentially similar in its mechanism. Uh, and this patient is being treated with AMFO because she has severe pulmonary histo and was getting a little bit better. And then about a week into it, she just has gotten worse, and her X-ray looks worse with new infiltrates and. And so we talked about it, and we actually started some steroids. Why wouldn't you just restart the infliximab there if that was the problem? Just curious. I guess you could, yeah. Steroids probably work a little faster than infliximab. but Probably. Restarted some steroids, and in 30 hours, something like that, she's better today. So uh, I always caution, though, because these could be true-true and unrelated, right? So it may not right. be may not be totally related to the steroids, but uh, still an interesting, interesting. Yeah. I mean, you're caring for a patient that I took care of a couple of weeks ago uh, on VV You did Echo. such a great job. <laughs> and I thought, speaking of ID, that I was going to have my first tularemia case. I was really excited about it. Yeah. 
it was like the boards question classic where they give you a patient with a vague presentation but slip that one key piece of history and you're supposed to guess the diagnosis from that. Here it was that they uh, mow lawns and, you know, all the other fungal and more common things had already been ruled out. So I was like, man, what if he mowed over an old rabbit's den and had the tularemia spores aerosolized? It wasn't tularemia. I, re- I was really hoping that the tularemia would come back negative after I came off service, but it came back the last day I was on. I was like, man, I really just wanted to leave service and be like, that was tularemia. You could always, I mean, I've seen a lot of people do this. You could always just claim it's the atypical culture negative tularemia. Yeah, the, the IgGIgm negative tularemia. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, good. Is good. he on infliximab? No. Because maybe he doesn't mount an IgGIgm. I'll just, I'll just take the loss there. It's a CVID tularemia. <laughs> Onto the show, acronym first. The MINT study was myocardial ischemia and transfusion. So the MIT is pretty easy, right? Myocardial ischemia, transfusion. Or Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh-huh. And the N looks like it has to come from the middle of and. Has to, yeah. So I'm, I'm, or it could just be one of those, I don't know what the linguist would call this, words where instead of spelling out the whole word, we just do N. Yeah, what would you call that, Todd? Like peanut butter N jelly. I think that's a contraction. Got it. I'm not, I'm not joking. But I'm guessing you wanted them to call it Miat. That, Miat would have been, yeah, would have gotten a higher score for me. What do you think? Uh, Mint actually is a nice name, though. I mean, it is. It, it makes me uh, refreshed my breath. It's, you know, something I think we all think pleasantly about. I think I'm in the camp of probably seven and a half or eight. Yeah, I, I say I'm a fan. I, I do think it would have been nice to have like a meta name here. So, you know, trick is transfusions and critical care and tris is transfusion and septic shock. So if they did like... And tracks, which we're going to talk about, transfusion requirements after cardiac surgery. Yeah, but so like, what about trammy, right? It would have just been like transfusions and myocardial infarction. It would have been nice to have, to, have that, to have that meta, like the meta naming. So like you just remember all the transfusion trials starts with tra. But I mean, I, I do like it overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm probably a seven out of 10 here. And you could be, you could do Tramint. Oh, yes, Todd. Yeah. Transfusions in MI and transfusion? Right. Good. I mean, it's about transfusion, so you want to make sure you say it twice. That's, that's exactly how we name things, Todd. Uh, so I'll, I'll give a little bit of background on topic. If you want to get a little bit of history, Todd, you're talking about tracks. So uh, anemia is common, and it's common in patients who get acute MI. Uh, it would make sense that you'd care about hemoglobin levels in MI. You know, hemoglobin carries oxygen, and the problem is that the myocardium isn't getting enough oxygen, so maybe addressing the hemoglobin can impact that. The flip side of that is like a true coronary event MI are blockages, not related to blood products and blood content, so hemoglobin levels may not matter as much. And then for people with definitionally weak hearts, you can be concerned about uh, overload from transfusions or TACO or other side effects of blood transfusions like, you know, lung injury. And so you could pretty easily settle on either side of the street there. Todd, can you go over for us what we already know about the topic? I think it's a, it's a pretty good story in critical care medicine, to be honest with you, is uh, Trix was sort of the first large trial in this area and looked at transfusion thresholds, compared transfusion threshold in critically ill patients of seven versus 10. And so they took patients that had a hemoglobin less than 10 and they randomized them to, we will transfuse you if your hemoglobin goes less than seven or we'll wait, I'm sorry, if your hemoglobin is less than 10, i.e. now, or we'll wait until it goes less than seven and found that actually there was benefit and even a mortality benefit if you waited until the, the hemoglobin went less than seven. In that first trial in tricks, they excluded two big populations that you and I take care of. One was, quote, active 
cardiac disease, which if I've read this article innumerable times, and they never ever define what active cardiac disease is. So I guess it was at the discretion of people that were enrolling as to whether you had active cardiac disease. You know, when you see it. Maybe. Yeah, maybe another one of those. And the second group was actively bleeding. And while we don't do a lot of trauma, we see a lot of GI bleeds that were actively bleeding. And so for a long time, we used seven as our hemoglobin threshold for transfusion, with the exception of patients that might have acute coronary syndrome or active cardiac disease and patients that were bleeding. Then next came a study of upper GI bleeds and comparing, again, 7 and 10 in upper GI bleeds. And many of those were variceal bleeds. And they actually did this really nice and elegant mechanistic study where they did portal pressures, portal vein pressures, and actually showed that if you transfuse people up to 10, they had higher portal vein pressures. They actually bled more and they actually had worse outcomes. In that study were both variceal bleeds and essentially ulcers were the two causes for upper GI bleeds in that study. Again, finding that the lower hemoglobin threshold for transfusion was better than the upper. And then there are two studies in in patients that uh, have coronary disease. Uh, I guess now MINT is the third. So the first two that were out there were a study called TRACS, which is transfusion requirements after cardiac surgery. And all of these patients had cardiac surgery, many of them bypass surgery, although there's some valve surgeries in there too. And they demonstrated, they actually, because you know, we can't continue to use the same thresholds or people may remember them. They actually used eight versus 10 in that trial instead of seven versus 10. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, clearly seven was the wrong answer. We need to try eight. And they found that there was really no difference. Although if you look numerically at the numbers, hemoglobin transfusion threshold of eight compared to 10 was actually slightly better, but not statistically significantly better. Uh, That was after cardiac surgery. And then in a trial called Reality, in that trial, which was actually after myocardial infarctions, they looked at 7 versus 10 and again showed that 7 was slightly better, but not like markedly better. But 10 was clearly not better. So it didn't win in that trial. And that, I think, gave many of us in the critical care world some comfort and some data to say, while acute cardiac problems were and bleeding were acute bleeding were uh, excluded from tricks. We now have subsequent data to suggest that those populations, it's probably okay to use a lower threshold seven, or if you truly want to be religious to tracks eight, but a lower, a lower hemoglobin threshold for transfusion in those patients also. Yeah. So, I mean, two things to highlight there that as relates to the discussion we're going to have is that none of those trials showed even a suggestion of a benefit of the higher transfusion target. Yeah, correct. There is, and I don't actually remember the name of the trial, but it's an observational study, I think, that suggests that in oncology patients, maybe a higher transfusion threshold is better than a lower transfusion. 10 is better than 7. It's not a robustly done study, but it's provocative. And it now, at least in my practice prior to Mint, always made me wonder, is the special population here, the population I should worry about and do something different in, is it oncology patients? But those data were not robust enough to actually integrate into my practice. And so I'm pretty much using seven, a pretty hardcore seven, not even the eight across my practice right now. Yeah. And, and the other thing, and this this will feed right into the point I'm about to make, is that tracks and reality, neither of them enrolled patients with the demand ischemia, right? So they were looking at post-cardiac surgery. They had a real cardiac disease. They're looking at post-real like MIs. Yeah. All of those people out there that had a type two non-STEMI are, you know, sort of mad at you that you just said they had a non-real MI. <laughs> I mean, geez, that's a little bit harsh. I mean, the the billers and coders keep getting mad at me, so I don't know what to call it anymore. <laughs> yeah, there is that. I think th- from a, and 
physiology has never worked out for us that well in critical care medicine, let's be honest. But I think from a physiology standpoint, it makes kind of sense, right? If the mechanism of your myocardial infarction is you ruptured a plaque and then you formed a clot and now you have no blood flow after that clot, it doesn't really matter what the hemoglobin is in your blood or what the hematocrit is in your blood that's not getting to that tissue. It's not going to change it. Whereas, as I think this is your point, is, is that if the reason that you've had a myocardial injury is, is because you have a supply and demand problem, Right. then a higher hemoglobin will increase the supply, and maybe then you have a better match of the supply and the demand, and you end up with less tissue damage and better outcomes. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's just go ahead and talk about these patients. So this was a multinational study in 144 centers in the U.S., Canada, France, Brazil, and New Zealand. They enrolled adult patients with MI, both with ST elevation and not ST elevation, who had anemia defined as a hemoglobin of less than 10. Patients with type 1, 2, 4B, and 4C MI were eligible for the trial. They were ineligible if they declined transfusions, had uncontrolled bleeding, or their plan for cardiac surgery. So I want to take a second on the type 1, 2, 4B, 4C, MI thing. So I was always taught there's type 1 and type 2, but this implies there's at least four types, and then there's also subtypes. I was just going to say it keeps getting more and more complicated. Yeah, it does. So type 1 is a classic coronary artery disease, plaque rupture, coronary thrombus. Okay, easy. Type 2 is the myocardial infarction secondary to ischemic imbalance. So this is what we colloquially call demand ischemia. Uh, So when something other than a coronary artery disease causes a myocardial oxygen supply demand mismatch, so like arrhythmias, lots of demand or hypotension, not enough supply. Type 3 was skipped. That was cardiac death without a biomarker drawn. So the patient came in with a STEMI on EKG but died before blood work. Okay, so that was skipped. Type 4A and 4B are ischemia related to cardiac cath, so either the PCI itself or a stent thrombosis. Type 5, which was also skipped, but just to be thorough, was related to bypass grafting. So lots of words. But I wanted to go over this because just as we were talking about, this does apply to the non-cardiologist ICU intensivist that type 2 MIs are something that we see not infrequently. And actually, in fact, I'm jumping around a bit, a slight majority of their patients were this type 2 MI demand ischemia. Is there going to be a quiz on this at the end? Because, I mean, there's at least five now types of MI. Yeah, this is is basically just saying... I thought like the pulmonary hypertension categories (laughs) were hard, I mean. Yeah, I mean, this is basically just saying... If you had an elevated troponin and it wasn't from cardiac surgery, then you're included in this trial. Yeah, fair, fair. Patients in this trial are randomized one-to-one to receive restrictive versus a liberal transfusion strategy where restrictive was recommended hemoglobin less than 7, and then it was permitted between 7 or 8, uh, or if there was unremitting anginal symptoms. This was compared to liberal, which was a unit at randomization plus a target hemoglobin of greater than 10 grams per deciliter until discharge. Recall, the inclusion criteria was a hemoglobin of less than 10, so that's why they got the one unit up front. These strategies were pretty reasonably unblinded. Primary outcome was myocardial infarction or all-cause mortality at 30 days after randomization. You might be wondering how they decided a patient had recurrent MI, and they weren't super transparent, but this outcome was centrally adjudicated by a trial committee, so at least pretty robust. Yeah, I mean, this is not uncommon in at least cardiac trials, is to have a cardiovascular adjudication committee that's blinded, that adjudicates 
was this death from a cardiovascular thing? Did this count as an MI? Did this count as a stroke? You know, those sorts of things. So this is really, really common, and not, not necessarily in critical care studies per se, or in transfusion studies with hemoglobin thresholds per se, but it's really, really common in a lot of the cardiac studies that are out there. Uh, they had some they had some pre-specified secondary outcomes like composite of death, MI, and unscheduled coronary vascularization, and readmission for ischemia in 30 days. They had some pre-specified subgroups, which I won't read here for the sake of time and sanity, but included baseline heart failure, baseline level of hemoglobin, type 1 versus type 2 MI, and renal function, which were all subgroups that I was interested in. Now, I, I think I would have been interested in a sepsis subgroup, but I can see why that wasn't one of their priorities. Yeah, then you need another adjudication committee. Yeah, for sepsis. Right. But we have definitions of sepsis, Todd. They're all great. Every single one of them. None of them have any issues. A change in two of your SOFA score. Q SOFA greater than or equal to two. Let's let's not get into that nightmare of a discussion here. Anything before I go into the results, Todd? Um, No, I I think the... Uh, No, let me just say something. Right. No, but let me comment. Yep. And we'll talk about this. I think the, the nuance here is understanding how this might be different than reality. Different from like the reality, our trial, reality, not like you know our life reality. Yeah, I think an important part about understanding how to interpret these results and potentially put them into practice is understanding the difference between this and really reality, the reality trial. Tracks, which is after cardiac surgery, you could just say, I mean, obviously there's a difference in those patient populations, um, and and those patients were excluded here. Yeah, correct. Right, uh, and tricks. I think you could say these are the patients that were excluded from tricks, so those aren't those don't overlap. So it's this in reality. Reality had a, about a third of their patients had ST elevation MIs, and then two thirds had non ST elevation MI for whatever that definition is. They don't define it nearly as well in reality as they do in MINT. Reality is a fun trial and acronym, just yeah, by the a, way. It's just a tough acronym because when you're using about. it in, in language, people are like, is he talking about like virtual reality or what is he talking about? <laughs> yeah. And I think you're right. I think Mint had more demand ischemia or any demand ischemia. There could be some demand ischemia in reality's non-ST elevation MI group. But I think Mint has more of that in, in their uh, population. I mean, when I flipped through the reality trial... I was looking specifically for that, and it seemed like that they were implying, at least, that they were trying to avoid that. They were trying to get, like, true The reality line. was published in 2011. Were you— 21. Oh, 21, sorry. Um, Tracks was 2011, I think. Yeah. Were you out of high school in 2011? Was I out of high school? Almost. Almost. No, I was, I was in college. Nice. I was clearly keeping up with the cardiac surgery literature when I was in college. Definitely. When I was 20, 21 years old. Some people on Friday night, they go out to the bars. You were reading cardiac surgery literature. Absolutely. I was cool. I was a cool kid. Table one, baseline characteristics. They had a total of 3,504 patients who were randomized. This is, this is huge. This is a huge trial. Uh, I think reality was 600 patients about. Almost seven, 680 or something like that, but still significantly smaller. This is like almost mid. five times bigger. Um, they had 1,749 in the restrictive arm compared to 1,755 in the liberal arm. The median age was 72. It was about 45% female, 70% white, about 12% black. About one third of the patients had each a prior MI, a prior PCI, prior heart failure. 21.7% of the patients had prior bypass grafting. I referenced this earlier about but about 41% of the patients had a type 1 MI, so related to coronary disease, and 55% with type 2, so the demand ischemia type. 
the baseline hemoglobin enrolled was 8.6 grams per deciliter. The median creatinine was 1.4, which was the only part that surprised me a little bit. Uh, So most patients had some degree of kidney disease, whether it was chronic or acute. I kind of expect this in sepsis, uh, but I don't know, maybe I should expect it more in MI as well. Uh, 13% of the patients were intubated as well, which probably furthers the conclusion that, you know, a lot of these patients were in your typical type 1 MIs. Yeah, it probably increases the proportion that have demand ischemia. Figure 1 is their separation between groups, and they separated pretty nicely. This is a two-panel figure where the mean hemoglobin level raises from 8.6 to 10.1 by day one and stays at 8.6, effectively, in the restrictive group. I know, Eddie, that you comment that you didn't have the best mentorship. I had good mentorship. And this actually, my mentor would teach is the, did I do a trial? I mean, it's not, did you enroll 3,000 patients and get outcomes or whatever? This is the sort of, do you have a separation of groups? Did you actually do two different interventions? And I agree with you. They have reasonable separation here. The hemoglobins are different in the two groups. And the amount of blood that was given was different in the two groups. Right. That's the B panel, this two panel figure. Yeah. Uh, Saying we treated the patients in the two arms differently and therefore differences in outcomes could be attributed to the differences in the way we treated them to intervention arms of the trial. Do you think part of the role of a mentor is to teach their mentees how to be mentors? There's, there, no, there's never anything in that in the contractual agreement. Okay, then I agree that your mentor is probably pretty good because they definitely failed on that part. I'm going to interrupt you and I'm going to go back to that panel B from that previous. Okay. About one thing, which is there are people, I've heard a number of them talk, that say that the difference between zero units transfused and one is not the same as one and two or two and three and that sort of stuff. Meaning that first unit Any. means more than because there might be some immunomodulatory effects of blood. And once you get the first unit, you've incurred those as opposed to if you never got a unit. Yeah, and any, the reason any, I bring this, any is different from none. Great. Right. The reason that I bring this up is, is because in the hemoglobin, the liberal strategy, i.e. hemoglobin of 10, essentially all, everybody got transfused. There are 5% of the patients that got no units which makes sense because you had to be below 10 to be eligible to be in the trial. And then if you got randomized to that group, you would get transfused pretty much right away. Whereas two-thirds of the patients in the conservative strategy, hemoglobin of seven, never got a unit of blood. They got zero units of packed red blood cells. That, I think, is another metric of we really did do a trial here and give patients transfuse patients in the higher threshold group and not transfuse patients in the lower yeah, threshold Yeah, so you're, you're saying that if the intervention is not the hemoglobin target but is actually – the receipt of a transfusion, that's the actual key difference, then you answered both questions this way. Yeah. The primary outcome of MI or death in 30 days, it was 16.9% in the restrictive group compared to 14.5% in the liberal group. That gave a risk ratio of 1.16 and a 95% confidence interval from 1.00 to 1.35. This was almost identical in their adjusted analysis for baseline risk factors. When they did an analysis adjusting for the site and incomplete follow-up with multiple imputation, there was a similar risk ratio, but a p-value of 0.07. They found similar, non-significant results in favor of the liberal strategy for each piece of the composite, MI or death. In their subgroups, it looks like the subgroup of type 1 MI showed a significant difference whereas the type 2 MI was closer to neutral. That's the way it always works in medicine, right? We just talked about why this should work in the type 2 MI <laughs> and not in the type 1 MI. And then when they look at subgroups, you go, wow, it looks like if it worked anywhere, it worked in the type 1 MI. Yeah, you know, like yeah. what we were just talking about, the plaque rupture, the blood yeah. won't get there, your hemoglobin yeah. doesn't matter. Uh, maybe maybe it does. Th- all that was in figure 4. Figure 3, which I skipped, was the Kaplan-Meier curves, which show a reasonably early split around four days and stays separate from there. 
So I guess the first question is, uh, what do you make of these results overall, especially in the context of tracks and reality? Yeah, I, th- I really think that you've got a couple things that you can say. You can say, this trial seems like an outlier from everything else, and I'm not sure I'm going to believe it. I'm not exactly right. sure that that's the way I would interpret it. But I mean, that's that's what I pointed out in the front, right? Every transfusion trial has yeah. suggested a benefit towards being more restrictive. Right. And this one is the first one that shows anything about being more liberal. Right. The second, I think, way that you could interpret this is the effect size here is small. And it took 3,500 patients to even come close to seeing it. It doesn't quite meet significance. But, you know, when you look at it, you go, yeah, that may be real, but it's a 1% or 2% difference in the composite outcome of these these events. These events are relatively frequent, so uh, maybe that's a real number. And then it makes me wonder, is the effect size bigger in a subgroup of this population that we should be trying to figure out who those are to potentially have a different but, threshold? But that subgroup was the same, uh, I think at least, the same subgroup that reality was looking at. And reality also showed a trend towards a benefit for being more restrictive. So this is this is uh, exactly the opposite. Yeah, completely agreed. And therefore, I think if you're going to try and understand the two, you need to understand differences in populations. And the differences in populations may then help you understand which subgroup of patients in this subgroup, in these subgroups of patients, might be the group that we're, we should be trying to target with the hemoglobin, with the higher hemoglobin? I, you know, people, people said to me, and I think they probably are right, although it's completely unhelpful clinically, is, is that, huh, you know, it looks like maybe this does work in some patients some of the time. Well, great. What the hell am I supposed to do with that from a clinical standpoint, right? Well, obviously, you can just pick those patients by looking at them. Right. You walk in the room and you say, hey, are you one of those some patients? And is this one of those sometimes? Are, are you one of those patient, patients whose sepsis is going to get better with steroids? I ask that. It's a, that's part of my basic history, actually. So I think, that, I think that makes it hard to take this and implement it widely into practice. Unless you want to just say, well, for whatever reason, we don't want to believe the realities trial. And then, you're, then you've got some explaining to do. Like, you know, like, hold out and say, I don't believe reality. People are going to wonder if you should be committed to the psychiatric hospital because you don't believe in reality. I, I'm, no, I mean, com- no comment. So I think this is provocative and makes me wonder, are there patients that I, you know, patients with demand ischemia that I should be giving a uh, higher threshold to? Of course, then you look at the, the figure four and the subgroups and you go, well, that's not a, not a group that really looks like it, it benefited a ton from it. So uh, let's make this a little bit more concrete. So... You have a patient, septic shock, their troponin comes in at 0.1, where for us the upper limit of normal is 0.04. Their hemoglobin is 8.5. They don't have any signs of bleeding, clearly. You're not transfusing them, is what you're saying? Well, they will have signs of bleeding after I put them on their heparin drip, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not transfusing that patient. If there's a patient who, for whatever reason, uh, their hemoglobin's low, their troponin maybe continues to go up, and I don't have a reason why their troponin's continuing to go up, and their hemoglobin's 7.5 or something, maybe I give them a unit of blood instead of saying, no, well, we know that 7's okay. But that's not informed by this trial. Well, that's me trying to take the results of this trial and implement them into a niche in practice that I think, based off of physiology, and we've talked about all the problems that we have when we base treatment off of physiology in the ICU. That we're always wrong? Yeah, just every single time, not always. I, I think that trying to then justify that practice by saying, well, maybe there was a signal in mint might be where you're left. Yeah. But I but I I'm not gonna use these results 
and change my practice for every single patient that has an elevated troponin and now target 10 instead of seven for my for my hemoglobin threshold. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I'm going to use this as a, I have other reasons why I might want to give someone blood products or give someone volume or give someone colloid and their hemoglobin's like 7.1, which doesn't hit our actual threshold. I might be like, okay, well, you know what? Maybe I'm just going to go ahead and give them blood instead of giving them that crystalloid that's going to drop their hemoglobin to less than seven anyway. Um, I feel a little bit more comfortable with that. But, right. But, but as you said, that's not this study. No, it's that's not. That's an interpretation of these results into clinical practice, but it's not, you can't say those are the patients that were were sought out and included in this trial. No, not by, by no means. So I, I think, I, I do think it was really interesting. I'm really appreciative to these authors for including the ugly stepchild of myocardial infarctions, the demand ischemia in their study population. So we have more information to to guide our care here. But unfortunately, it, it doesn't really, it can't change too much what we do. There go all of our listeners. You will have just offended all of the ugly stepchildren that are out there and they're not going to listen anymore. <laughs> okay. So uh, this article is not quite old per se, but we've been meaning to talk about it and it fits in well with our last topic, which are transfusions. This trial doesn't have an acronym, but I have a small story to tell. So I can tell when Todd is excited about an article because that's when he goes around to everyone he sees and says, have you seen this? And he doesn't do it often, but we were at a conference when this one came out and everyone who came up to say hi to Todd, Todd was like, have you seen this? It's crazy. So yeah, uh, I think Todd is excited about this one. Yeah, it's less excitement and more anxiety, I think. it's There's some stuff in here that is fascinating and is also... I think maybe a little bit troubling. Yeah. So like our typical second article fashion, we're going a little bit quickly and use it as a jumping off point for a discussion. The paper is titled Intracerebral Hemorrhage Among Blood Donors and Their Transfusion Recipients, published by Zhao et al. and JAMA in September of 2023. This was a retrospective cohort analysis using the blood bank and health registry data from Sweden and Denmark, including all patients who had received a red blood cell transfusion from 1970 to 2017. This was 1,089,370 patients. So a pretty small cohort. Yeah, I mean, come on. Like, give me 2 million here. Uh, They were specifically looking at donors who subsequently had intracerebral hemorrhage, uh, multiple intracerebral hemorrhages, or no intracerebral hemorrhage. So it's a little bit confusing, so I'll say it again. They were looking at donors who didn't, at the time of donation, have an intracerebral hemorrhage, but would go on in the future, potentially years after their donations, to have intracerebral hemorrhage. So that was the exposure, and the outcome was looking at intracerebral hemorrhage in the transfusion recipients. So why were they looking at this? Well, there were reports about cerebral amyloid angiopathy, and it would being transmissible via injection, specifically of cadaver pituitary hormone in humans. So it's a little bit a little wild, a little bit of a lot of jumps in logic here, but that was the rationale, and that's what they were trying to do. Yeah, just to state it again, because I think it's important. These are donors who had not had an intracerebral hemorrhage at the time of donation, not current, not in the past, you know, no history of it, who after donation at some point in the time after that, and it could have been years after that, had an intracerebral hemorrhage. And then the patients that they look at, the recipients, also do not have a history of intracerebral hemorrhage, but then they look at whether or not those patients have an intracerebral hemorrhage after they receive blood from the donor that they looked at with the same criteria for prior intracerebral hemorrhage. They ended up using Sweden and Denmark as like kind of like a main and validation cohort. Their baseline characteristics are a little bit hard to summarize because of the six groups, you know, 
Sweden, Denmark, and then each group has no hemorrhage, single hemorrhage, and multiple hemorrhage. Uh, but the majority of patients were females. The median age was about 65, and it looks like patients received between two and six transfusions on median. The money here is in the figure one, which is a forest plot, where it seemed like the patients who received blood from patients who went on to have multiple hemorrhage were more likely to have a hemorrhage. And they also ended up using ischemic stroke as a sensitivity analysis to see if this was replicated using a different disease state, but they didn't find a difference there. Well, a disease state specifically, right, that wouldn't be attributable to cerebral uh, amyloid angiopathy or whatever the phrase is that I've never heard of before this trial. Yeah. You, you want to explain what this means, Todd? Well, the concern is, and this is the reason why I said it's a little bit scary and makes you a little anxious, is the concern is, is that are we transmitting the risk of intracerebral hemorrhage from donor patients that are giving packed red blood cells to recipients through the packed red blood cells? And it's a risk get. that you don't know that they have. They have right. They haven't manifested the risk yet. Yeah. And then they transmit it. You know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you did, but I didn't think of intracerebral hemorrhage as a transmissible disease. I didn't think we could give it from one person to another. This says maybe, and especially if the mechanism is this amyloid protein that apparently deposits in these vessels and makes them fragile and more likely to rupture. If that's the mechanism for how you ended up getting your intracerebral hemorrhage, then it sounds like you can actually give that protein to other people and confer some risk to the recipient of having a similar intracerebral hemorrhage. Yeah, I mean, there's limitations to the study, right? So they were concerned about cerebral amyloid, and they didn't use amyloid but a proxy. And the outcome of the proxy itself was rare, despite a million patients in this cohort. But it's still a scary signal. So we're incurring a risk for our blood transfusion recipients that we could never suss out at the uh, upfront. I mean, this risk is rare, but probably greater than the risk of transmitting HIV or hepatitis C in a transfusion in today's world. We and and this is where I think you know how do you apply this? How what do you do from right. an C- application standpoint? Cerebral amyloid is often diagnosed on autopsy, right? right? So like. I guess you could go looking for the protein in the blood. Yeah, it does sound like, again, outside of my expertise for sure, but it does sound like you might be able to detect the protein in the blood. So maybe we need to develop a test and do the test on the donated blood to see if you, you know, just like we do a hepatitis C test and an HIV test on the donated blood to to exclude patients that we know have that infection. I don't know, because I don't know this disease process that well, if that's going to exclude a lot of patients, because... It turns out we have a blood shortage in this, at least in our area, I think in this country, but at least in our area, we have a blood shortage. So the last thing we really want to do is exclude more units of blood. And I think I think one of the things that's the scary about this is that it might be more common if we start, you know, than we think if we start going looking for it, right? So they talk about, when you talk about amyloid, like there's a wild type, and then there's also like the just senile amyloid, just from people are getting older and they just ended up finding it. If you go looking for this protein, you might find it in a lot of places and it just never becomes clinically relevant in those patients. Yeah. So that's one application is, do we have the ability to go looking for this protein and should we be looking for it and then trying to potentially exclude units of blood based off of they have this protein? The second thing to me is, is maybe this is the first step. Should we be informing our patients about this? When we go and give blood, we do an informed consent process and we say there's a risk of HIV. It's really small because we test for it, but there's a risk. It's not zero. There's a risk of hepatitis C. There's a risk of other infections. There's a risk you could have a reaction to the blood. 
should we say there's a risk that you might have an intracerebral hemorrhage down the road? And I think the answer to that based off of this is not yet, but doesn't put me in a very comfortable spot. I think one of the things here is, you know, I think we've gotten to a point in our in medical practice as a whole that we're not transfusing blood kind of willy-nilly. So by the time that we're getting to the blood transfusion, we're saying that, what, you're laughing at me? Well, I'm waiting for the listener to give us the orient, origin of willy-nilly. <laughs> but the, but the, point, the point being that the risks that we understand are all fairly small, and this risk, as we understand it, is fairly small, but a, potentially a real risk. So I'm not sure it would, it would end up changing too much, even if you added it to your consent spiel. Yeah, the anxiety I have is, and I'm a, I in general am a transparent person who believes we should just disclose stuff. But there's a potential downside, which is if I come to you as a patient and I say, hey, there's a very small risk that you might get some protein from the blood that results in you having a brain bleed in two years or five years or down the road, you may go, yeah, I'm not, I'm not excited about getting the blood. How about you not give it to me? And in general, and I think this was the willy-nilly comment, in general, we're not asking people, we're not consenting people for blood unless we think you really need blood. Like, it's definitely in your best interest to get blood. And so giving people, scaring people and causing them to have a reason to opt out, which may not be a real reason because it's one study, number one. And number two, if it is a real reason, it's probably pretty rare, uh, though, you know, that becomes a, that becomes a, a difficult area to know what the right thing to do is. Yeah, and we're not going to have a conclusion off of this discussion. So I'm actually going to change the topic a little bit to piggyback off something you just said. So uh, we talked about trick and tris and tracks and mint in reality, and you're talking about this restrictive versus liberal. And you're saying, oh, when we, we, we're consenting people for blood that we think that they need it. Right, And so some of that need is a hemoglobin of seven reaching our transfusion threshold. Do they need it at seven? No one's looked at six, right? No one's looked at five. You know, at some point you would think that, you know, going back to physiology that too low is bad, but I don't, do we know that lower bound yet? Our confidence that seven is truly the lower bound, I think is, is not very robust. That's what's been studied, but we haven't studied levels below that rigorously and thought that six is definitely wrong and seven is the right threshold, I think is probably not something that we can say with a lot of confidence. We just know what's been studied is seven. And so we use that as our threshold. I, I do think that once you start getting lower and lower and lower, you sort of, you, you sort of start getting pretty anxious. My former mentor used to play this game in the ICU with the trainees. Um, and it was a game of how low would you go? And he said, okay, so you're bleeding and you're anemic. What level of your hemoglobin are you going to let your count get to before you say, okay, I'm going to accept a transfusion? And, you know, people had all kinds. People would say five or people would say four or people would say six or some people were like, oh, seven, definitely give me blood at seven. And I think that just tells you that from what we know, we know that seven is acceptable, but that lower than that, uh, we just don't have great information on yeah. And at some point, too low. I mean, we've all seen the patient that comes in with a hemoglobin of three is in an extremis and has a lactate and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And clearly, that's too low in that patient. Yeah, and there's a chronic low, too, right? Yeah, so, like, you're coming, the stem cell transplant, they can't get count recovery, and they have a hemoglobin of five chronically, and they have high output heart failure, for example. Yeah. So. Agreed. Uh, I don't know. I don't have too many conclusions for this, Todd. Do you? Well, I think it's fascinating, and I think it's 
uh, it taught me about this cerebral amyloid angiopathy and and the potential that that might be the mechanism for some of these intracranial hemorrhages. And it just makes me wonder if, for many of you younger people out there, younger listeners, if in your careers you're going to see us test for this in blood donations in the future and or incorporate the thought of it into our decision-making, whether that's doing it in the consent form or whether thinking about that as a risk when we transfuse patients or any of that. I think like lots of provocative studies, it needs to, it needs to be substantiated. There needs to be another study like this that shows a similar, similar association, or, you know, we need to have a study where we directly show that patients that have this, this protein in their blood can, and maybe it's an animal study, I don't know, but that you can essentially transmit the risk of intracerebral hemorrhage through transmission of this protein uh, in blood, I think would would also lend some more credence to these findings, yeah. these results. Yeah, I mean, I had mentioned before that the, the outcome is really rare, and I didn't do the math here, but their fragility index for their finding has got to be really small, right? Like it was like, in their million patients, there was like a total of like 10 total of their outcomes that they were looking for. So uh, a couple of mailbag pieces we had a friend of the pod, J. Pedro Teixeira, or at Nefcrit underscore NM on X Twitter, tweeted us saying that the word that we were looking for, which is two words mashed together, is a portmanteau, not a contraction. Uh, I did ask a friend who's a linguist this question, and he said that... Wait, you have a friend who's a linguist? I do have a friend who's a linguist. I think this is made up. No, 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 no. And so he said contractions are combinations of words that go together in a sentence, like do not becomes don't. Um, like not a thing becomes nothing. <laughs> and a portmanteau is a combination of words that are similar in concept, but not necessarily next to each other in a sentence. So like smoke and fog is smog. Like you want to say smoke fog. So that I'm just sitting here thinking, how exactly does a linguist make money? <laughs> They're, I guess, a hobby linguist. Oh, I see. They're a data scientist by trade. I wondered if that was a viable profession that you could actually make a career and a living out of as a linguist. I think you could, right, yeah. in academics. I don't know. That may say something more about academics than it does about the linguists. I don't know. But, but to bring us full circle, so amicacin inhaled becomes, becomes amica inhaled. It's probably closer to portmanteau. I agree. Sounds like based off of the definitions that you dug out from your linguist. Is this, I have a friend, the quotations, I have a friend. Are you a, are you a, like a cult linguist? Am I an amateur linguist in my spare time? Should we go through your hobbies and see if one of them is linguist? All of my spare time. Yeah. I don't, I don't have very many hobbies, Todd. Uh, Podcasting is my hobby, but don't say I never taught you anything. Yeah. I, I may not remember what you just taught me, but yes, correct. Uh, on the medical side, the only mailbag piece I had is just a correction. Uh, in talking to some colleagues about the stress L trial, um, I realized that I said the, for the Esmolol and septic shock paper had a 30% relative risk reduction in mortality. It was actually a 30% absolute risk reduction in 28 mortality. It was 49.4% the Esmolol group and 80.5% the control group. But I mean, overall, thanks everyone for commenting, emailing. It's been great to read and keep them coming on the social at ICUcast and at ICUEdandTodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I was also ta- told that I should probably ask listeners to like and subscribe and leave five-star reviews uh, so you can help other people find us. So do that too if you can. Portmanteau? <laughs> Portmanteau. Portmanteau. Yeah. Is that at all close or related to Portuguese man of war? <laughs> no. No. Okay. No, I think it's a. I think that's it's a, how I'm going to remember it. Okay, okay, Todd, you do that. But th- that's all we have for episode 25 of the ICU Ed and Toddcast. If you have any questions for Todd or myself or anything you want us to talk about in the future, you can hit us up at ICU at ICU Cast at ICU Ed and Toddcast at gmail.com. 
thank you Todd uh, thank you and congratulations to the authors thank you to Mike Gannon for the intro and outro music thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next time let's go save some lives and try not to give some intergrade for those of you linguists out there the term willy-nilly comes from the obsolete phrase will I nil I great what is will I nil I or mean? I am willing I am not willing or I'm willing I am unwilling I am willing I am unwilling does that make sense in the current use of the phrase I, you use the phrase, not does, me. Does that even make sense? I mean, am I? Am I? I am willing. I am not willing. That just means I'm not willing, right? No, I am willing. But you that's said the first part of that. But I, I am not, unwilling. But I'm not willing. I'm unwilling. That's the second part of that. Yeah, I think that that has a trump. That's the nilly. I think you know. Willy I, is the I am willing. This podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable. We try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.